You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Um, well, firstly, I can't tell you how, how thrilled I am to be, uh, to be in this room with all of you and all of these fantastic speakers. This is an issue that, uh, that you know, I've certainly been thinking about quite a bit lately. Um, we've written about it quite a bit, and it's, and it's uh, certainly, a, for me at least, a, a brilliant cheat sheet to be in a room with some of the best experts on the subject uh, to, to, to pick their brains. Um, before we start getting into the, into the kind of nitty-gritty of the topic itself, I'm going to point you to a URL, that uh, teeny little URL at the top. And um, you know, if there are any parents in this room, you'll know it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a constant fight to keep your kids off devices. Uh, happily, in today's session, we're doing the exact opposite, which is, which is to say, please do take out your devices and navigate to that URL, because there's going to be a, an online uh, vote and a question that's going to come up. So it may take you a minute or two to get to that. Um, there's also a hashtag, uh, and we've lost the hashtag. Why am I just looking in the wrong place? Uh, there we go. So it would be great if you also put that out on social media. Um, and while you're all doing that, um, I'm... I'm I suppose I should introduce myself. Jonathan Rosenthal, I'm the Africa editor at The Economist. Um, the, the issue of, of, of Africa's rising debt um, or, or debt burden and debt sustainability, I think, is, is, is one that is uh, certainly hitting the, the kind of broader public consciousness, but I think is still one that people are struggling to deal with. I, I certainly know from, again, my, my own conversations within The Economist when discussing this, is you, you sort of throw out a debt-to-GDP number and people will say, you know, 60%, that, that doesn't sound terribly high, look at the UK, and you then have to start getting into, you know, interest rates and all of that. So, 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 so I think it is, it is a subject that is uh, increasingly uh, in the public's mind, but not yet one in which the uh, people are, are, are feeling sufficiently informed. Um, so, so it sounds wrong to say this in, in, in this context, but I, I certainly feel very indebted to the ODI for, uh, for organizing this right now. Um, if you've, if you've navigated to that, that URL, I think, uh, now I need to find the exact question. Um, we're going to, I'm going to ask you to, to uh, please you know, answer this question. I think you can do that online and offline. And the question is, uh, in your view and experience, are African countries at uh, risk of falling into a debt crisis? Um, and by that, we just uh, mean when a government is no longer able to service its debt. So if you could grab your devices uh, and, and start voting on that, um, and we will then uh, have a chance to, to uh, revisit this question later on in the day. I hope I, I see people are all looking down. I hope that's, that's working. Um, and while you're busy doing that, um, I'm just going to introduce our panel and, and I suppose some of the key questions that uh, hopefully they will be addressing. And the first is just uh, a broad overview. What are the potential debt trajectories in, in sub-Saharan uh, Africa? What are the countries that are most at risk of falling into debt distress? Uh, what are the risks uh, for debt sustainability uh, um, given the diversity of finance that, we, that we've seen going in these new sources of finance? Uh, and how can the, the existing frameworks uh, for monitoring debt uh, vulnerabilities be improved? And I believe that there was some discussion earlier this morning looking in particular at issues around accountability and transparency. Um, so while you are voting, and are those answers coming up yet? Uh, 
Uh, I'm just going to briefly introduce our panelists. Closest to me is David Robinson, Deputy Director of the Africa Department of the IMF. Then Dorte Domeland, who's a practice manager uh, dealing with global macro and debt analytics and macroeconomics uh, at the World Bank. We've got Annalise, who we, we all have to thank for uh, being, <laughs> being an organizer here, a Senior Research Fellow at the ODI. Further on is Greg Smith, who's Director of Fixed Income Strategy at RENCAP, giving us a view from the markets. And uh, right at the end, we've got Fanuel Bukasi, who is an executive director at Afrodad. Uh, and now, do we have any results from this electronic poll? Uh, or are we having <coughs> some technical difficulties? We OK. Uh, I think <laughs> we, we're going to give up on the technology. This, this can be a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's an RCT, there's an ad, a statistically you know, identical audience in, in a room on the other side, and, and, and we'll see if they get a better result. But in the meantime, I'm going to turn over to you, David. Okay, thank you, Anne. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, what I want to do is try to set up a little bit of the, the big picture macro stage. And I feel in some ways I'm giving a lot of the pictures that Antoinette described earlier today. Um, but also picking up on exactly the issue that you raised in the very first slide. We should not forget that all countries have debt, all. Um, and if we look, the chart on the left, Sub-Saharan Africa is the orange line. You see the huge spike, which was the, the debt crisis when that generated HIPIC and those things. Since then, debt has come down, has bounced up again in, in recent years, but it's not much above emerging markets and below um, that in advanced economies. And just for fun, I put it up on per capita terms too, and you can see that Sub-Saharan debt and debt is much lower than anywhere else in the rest of the world. The key issue, of course, this magic number. What is the magic number? The key issue is the concept. Um, you can carry as much debt as is sustainable. Sustainability is a forward-looking concept. It's not just about the debt number that's currently contracted. Where does the debt go? Is it translating into growth? Is it translating into export foreign exchange earnings? Is it generating government revenues? Are you generating the capacity to be able to repay the debt? And those concepts I'll come back to you know, later in the presentation. I also want to throw out one quick caveat, which I guess we touched on in subsequent sessions. We always talk about debt as though it's a single number. Um, the problem is that most of us have a different concept in mind. So many of the discussions and disagreements we have are because people are using different concepts. How much of this is external debt, domestic debt? Are we including the state-owned enterprises? Are we including debt that has been contracted but not dispersed? What do you mean about collateralization? Debt is a huge, complicated issue. Um, so don't rely just on the single number. You have to dig deeply. So decomposing a little bit, um, the gray lines, this is the, an interquartile range, you know, 25 to 75% of countries' debt to GDP ratios, trying to highlight that it's not a single story. You know, these positions move. Um, what we have seen, you know, this concern, you know, since 2013-17, we've had debt rise by about 20% of DGP, still substantially lower than the HIPIC area. But when you look at the debt service interest payments relative to, to revenues on the right-hand side, you see that the debt service has picked up back towards the levels, if not above those, that we saw in the times of the HIPIC. Um, that obviously is the source of the concern. Um, obviously, being interquartile range, means 25% of countries are even higher than the, the chart shown. Um, what that reflects in part is the changing nature of the resources. I mean, people are now borrowing euro bonds and more commercial loans rather than just relying on multilateral creditors. 
Um, again, those kind of issues will come up later. Uh, here in this chart, we've also put in projections. Um, I know there was requests for indications on which countries were likely to fall. Um, the individual country projections are all in our regional economic outlook, which is on our website. Um, there's an annex that has detailed country projections on all kinds of indicators, including debt levels and debt service. Um, but here, I mean, from what we're seeing for the aggregates as a whole, we're seeing pretty much, you know, debt levels intend to stabilize. Um, debt service ratios will still pick up a little bit because of the changing composition of financing. But of course, projections are done on the assumption that countries implement the policies that they have signed up to or announced. Um, that obviously is always a question mark. Now, the, where a lot of the discussion has started from was this deterioration in debt ratings. Um, the chart on the left gives our, it, it's the basic bar chart showing a number of countries where our DSAs um, highlight countries that are at low risk of debt distress, moderate, um, high risk, and then in distress. And you see the big increase in the number of countries at high risk of debt distress. Right? Um, I do want to flag that while we normally do, and I notice even in the chart on the right, I've done this, we often aggregate those countries in debt distress with those at high risk. When you look historically, less than half the countries that are identified as being in high risk actually end up ultimately ha reaching distress levels. Um, so it's not, you know, not a given. It's not materialized, but still, that's there. But I would also point out that while we're now looking at 15 countries in those top two categories, that still leaves 20 countries not in those categories. Right? So, I mean, there is still, you know, it's a mix. There's no single story here, which makes the opening question difficult, in, in my opinion. But, um, and when we look at why these countries have entered that distress on the right-hand side, when you decompose there, what we see is a lot of the driving factor was the fiscal imbalances increased. Uh, this was a time when many of these countries were facing commodity price shocks. Um, it was only natural that the fiscal increase, did they increase too much? Should we have been able to capture this and adjust more and more rapidly? Those are good questions. We also see that little orange bar at the top. These are those um, unidentified debts which suddenly materialized on the balance sheets when, crisis, when pressures got tighter. Um, looking at in a different, a lot of our regional outlook, we split the content into those countries that are oil exporters, those who are um, other resource exporters, and those that are you know, resource importers, essentially, um, non-resource-based economies. The chart on the left is, is one of my favorite charts from my regional outlook. Um, on the horizontal line, we have the public debt stock. Vertical line is the fiscal balance. You see from 2013 all the way up to 2016, we see the debt levels increasing throughout. What we saw in, starting in 2016 was that the oil exporters started to adjust quite a lot, and hence that big bend backwards. Um, the rest of the constant really didn't. Um, you still have a little bit of a drift of both fiscal deficit and also debt stocks. And on the right, it, we break down this fiscal, um, wh what was the adjustment? And the concern that is there is that a lot of the adjustment was based on cutting capital spending. And clearly there was inefficiencies in capital spending. Um, any of you who go to travel to some of these oil exporting countries, you can see some of the projects that were there. Um, but still, if you have a fiscal adjustment that's just based on stopping capital investment, that doesn't have real consequences for longer-term growth and future directions. The issue of domestic revenue mobilization, um, this chart just colors by country, the, the collection ratios. Over a 20-year period, what we see is you know, some improvement in revenues. But we're, so we're now looking at most of the constant having at least 13% of GDP in revenues. Um, 
that by itself is not really enough given the developmental needs and certainly given the needs to meet the SDGs. Um, so we'd like to see more progress here. And certainly when we look at the individual countries, generally we find there's a gap of 3 to 5 percent of GDP that could be there. And pushing through to the last slide. Looking at the growth path, what we have seen, you know, we had the big dip um, when the commodity price really hit in 2015, 2016. We had a bit of a rebound in, in 2017 to 2.7% for growth as a whole, the orange line. Um, going up to 3.1 is our projection of 2018, but then about 4% over the medium term. Um, a bunch of countries really didn't have a growth shock. Um, and non-resource intensive countries have continued to grow at about 6% a year. Um, but when we look, again, at the continent as a whole, when you flip this into per capita terms, um, with most countries in the continent still seeing population growth around 2.5% a year. When you take that out on per capita terms, we're looking for the longer term growth of only maybe 1.5% a year. That's not a huge number, and it's actually lower than what we're seeing projected for most other developing regions. So again, coming back to the opening, debt sustainability, the ability for a particular debt stock to um, be handled without generating a crisis, you need the growth, you need the revenue mobilization. Um, some issues on both sides, but also potential. Right? There are ways to address these, and certainly addressing these components has to be part of a solution. Great. Thank you, David. Um, I'm going to ask you to hold on to two thoughts, and, and, and perhaps we can come back to them in the discussion later, but I, but I think you, are, you identified two key issues, and, and, and the one being revenue, revenue mobilization, the second being growth. So let's, let's perhaps hold on to those thoughts and see where we can go with them. Uh, in the meantime, the technology has finally worked, and we have the results of our poll, which was that 83% of people in this room uh, uh, think that there uh, is a risk, 16% think there is not, uh, and uh, I imagine there's a mathematician or two uh, here, or at least some people familiar with numbers, so you can figure out from those ratios uh, how many people voted. Um, but we will, we will come back to those numbers later. Daughter, can I hand over to you? And, uh, and, and again, let's just sort of set the scene a bit with some of the main, uh, 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 the main trends in public debt. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, and it's a very important <coughs> topic. So uh, many of the issues I will raise uh, follow up on what Antoinette has raised this morning. I will drill down in some of the aspects. But as David just mentioned, uh, similar to other regions of the world, um, Sub-Saharan Africa experienced an increase in public debt since 2013, which is kind of the theme of the conference. Now let's be clear, not any increase in debt is bad. In some countries, such an increase, if well managed, can reflect policy responses, um, for example, to support growth in the context of a very low interest environment, or also response to shocks. And overall, it's important to keep in mind that public debt is very important for development as a whole. It can allow governments to promote growth, for example, to invest in, if they invest in productivity, enhancing uh, infrastructure projects when their own capacity to develop domestic revenues or grants or private sector financing is limited. Now, what is special about the sub-Saharan debt increase, uh, public debt is increase is A, it's somewhat larger than in many other regions of the world. It has been very broad-based, so around 80% of sub-Saharan African countries experienced an increase in debt. That said, there are many success stories, and one has to be mindful to really look at country-specific experiences. One cannot put all sub-Saharan African countries into one 
box, but it has been broad-based. It has been experienced by commodity exporters and non-commodity exporters, though especially fragile commodity exporters were those that experienced the highest increases in debt. And also, I think what caused a lot of alerts was that several sub-Saharan African countries underwent a situation of debt distress last year. Um, there has also been a significant shift in the composition of public debt in sub-Saharan Africa. One thing is that there has been a significant rise in domestic currency debt. So domestic debt, which was very low um, still a few years ago, has increased rapidly. And at the same time, we also have seen a shift towards more non-traditional external creditors, both on the commercial side as well as on the non-Paris Club bilateral side. Now, an increase in local currency denominated debt can be a good thing because it can insulate countries from exchange rate risks. However, if it's ramped up very quickly, if financial sectors are not developed and debt management capacity are not commensurately developed, it can lead to rollover risk and financial repression. So, in some countries, we also have seen that non-residential holdings of domestic currency debt has increased, and that adds to risks. There has been a steep increase in commercial lending. Many sub-Saharan African countries have issued bonds, something that perhaps five years ago, I think few of us would probably have imagined. Now, again, that can send a signal that some countries are now reaching frontier market status, but while others, for others, it will significantly increase redemption risk going forward over the medium term. Um, now, the, this increased reliance on commercial and quasi-commercial finance has brought higher debt service costs, something um, David alluded to, but also increased refinancing risk, interest rate risk, and capital reversal risk. And the question is how these <coughs> risks going forward can be managed in a, in a quite uncertain external environment. And there has been an increasingly diverse creditor base, which also includes non-Paris Club creditors, which has increased challenges for debt resolution. So there have been many opportunities for countries tapping into new sources of financing, but with these new and expanded sources of financing, also new risks have emerged. Now, the combination of this higher and riskier debt, combined with a forward look, has led to a steep increase in the countries in high risk of debt distress as assessed under the Joint Bank Fund Debt Sustainability Framework. So about 40% of low-income developing countries globally are now assessed to be in high risk or in debt distress. So uh, that brings me to the 2017 revisions of the Joint Bank Fund Debt Sustainability Framework. I was asked to provide a bit of an overview on that. Uh, we started in 2015, the fourth review of the framework, so it's something we have done regularly. And the objective of this fourth review was to update, use the 10-year data that we had accumulated to carefully look at the, how, how the framework had performed, develop new data sets, re-estimate the thresholds, to adapt it, to adapt it to the changing financial landscape of um, low-income developing countries, and also, of course, to improve it. So to simplify the framework for possible, but also to improve the rate and reduce the rate of false alarms. So the objectives were update, adapt, and improve. So the result of this was that in, and after many consultations with many stakeholders, that we tried to make the framework more complete. 
the, the, the templates which are available on the websites of the World Bank and the IMF include a host of realism tools that help to assess projections going forward. These tools help you to look at the drivers of the dynamics, the realism of planned fiscal adjust adjustment, the nexus between fiscal adjustment and growth and between public investment and growth, all which are very important to assess uh, the quality of the projections going forward. There has been a strong fo focus to incorporate additional risks, for example, contingent liability shocks, shocks to natural disasters or pandemics and market financing shocks. And there has been more reliant on country-specific data to really take the additional data that is available now into account. And that data is reflected in the fact, for example, that the debt carrying capacity is now assessed not solely on the CPIA, but on a combination of the CPIA and other country-specific macroeconomic variables. <coughs> we use the framework also as a way to enhance our engagement with authorities and to enhance the transparency as a whole. There's more focus in the revised debt sustainability framework on debt coverage. So you will see very clearly now in the DSAs, once they are published, that there's a nice table that shows exactly what is the debt coverage in the DSAs. And the contingent liability shock that has been designed to basically, um, um, th that applies for countries where not full public sector debt coverage has been achieved. There is also, for example, the realism tools that I mentioned, they are an important tool to scrutinize the inputs. And finally, the framework has been simplified. We got rid of indicators that have not been used and we streamlined the template to the extent possible. Um, now, so one of the pillars of the engagement has been the debt sustainability framework. The other important pillar was the debt management capacity building that we have undertaken a lot under the debt management facility. We have seen a lot of progress thanks to the TA in terms of countries, uh, more countries um, setting up debt management offices. There are improvements in debt records, improved legal frameworks. We have <coughs> seen a lot of progress in countries develop medium-term debt management strategies, which are particularly important in this changing cost-risk profile that countries are facing. But we see lags in the implementation of this debt management strategy. So that gets a bit to the boundary of capacity building that <laughs> Antoinette mentioned this morning. And finally, we have, um, between the bank and the fund, been asked to help countries address debt vulnerabilities by launching a multi-pronged approach on debt that was announced in Bali. And that focused on several pillars to strengthen debt analytics and monitoring, such as now the rollout and this uh, increased uh, implementation of the Joint Bank Fund Debt Sustainability Framework. We're doing much more capacity building on DSAs now. Enhanced support for debt transparency and scaled up support for debt management. Um, to conclude, as I mentioned, public debt levels in Sub-Saharan Africa have been rising. So debt levels remain well below pre-HIPIC levels, not um, interest payments, but, but, uh, but um, debt levels. But there is a risk. Uh, the, the debt structure has become more risky. Um, second, um, there has been an re increased reliance in financing on commercial terms, which creates certain risks I have mentioned. We have adapted the debt sustainability framework to respond to this changing financial landscape. And we are starting uh, the implementation of this multi-pronged approach to make a conscious effort uh, to scale up efforts to help countries address debt vulnerabilities. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Doctor. I, I, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask, uh, uh, given, given, the, given the latest news, where Italy would fit in <laughs> on your new framework. So we'll, we'll stay away from, we'll stick to sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but, but I think, I think you highlighted, uh, uh, and again, let, let's kind of keep this in mind for the rest of the conversation. But you highlighted the diversity and the new lens, uh, the, the new sources of, uh, of, of credit. And, and, uh, and Elisa, I think, I think, you know, you'd like to. Uh, discuss some of that in particular. And of course, I won't answer the question about Italy either. <laughs> but um, I would like to take a slightly kind of different perspective here and try to share some thoughts on two different points. First of all, uh, what's financing uh, uh, national development strategies and sustainable development goals, as well as a changing development finance landscape, mean for debt sustainability in low-income and lower-middle-income countries in Sub-Saharan Africa? And second, I will share some thoughts Antoinette has already, already raised uh, earlier this morning about one specific uh, lending source, uh, and this is about Chinese lending. So let me go to the very first point, and with a certain degree of simplification, uh, in most low-income and lower-middle income countries in the region, that financing is most likely the main financing options countries can rely on, in particular governments. Why is that the case? I mean, first of all, if you're thinking about all the budgets that are being relatively flat, we don't expect them to increase in the medium term. And again, the share uh, when it comes to kind of total financing has been kind of plummeting over time. Second, when it comes to lending from multilateral development banks, and again, Antoinette raised the kind of point around the expansion, uh, also both concessional and non-concessional lending from MDBs, uh, this is again a relatively small proportion. We talked about uh, domestic revenue mobilization, and I would like to cite once again uh, the stat from uh, a recent paper by my colleague Marcus Manuel. Uh, and indeed, in nearly 50 countries, uh, low income uh, and a bunch of kind of uh, lower middle income countries in Africa, even if they were able to kind of expand their tax revenues at the maximum potential given their structure of the economy, they wouldn't be able to afford uh, SDGs related to health, education, and social protection. Equity can be another option. It's usually a relatively low in low-income countries. Domestic financial markets tend to be underdeveloped. And so if we're kind of excluding other sources, and happy to discuss later on, like remittances, that indeed remains the main option to expand uh, national budgets, plans, and the SDGs. I have to say, I mean, there's been quite a lot of attention uh, on uh, the demand side of financing the SDGs, especially when it comes to the costing exercises, and rightly so. But looking at the supply side of financing the SDGs, we have, been, we have seen quite a lot of analysis looking at the changing trends, uh, changing composition, and also one of the culprits. Uh, but I haven't really seen, uh, to a certain extent, a reality check of the implications of financing the SDGs for that ratios and for their service going forward. I hope we will be able to fill this gap here at ODI in the next couple of months. When it comes, again, to the landscape of development finance, uh, there's an interesting trend. I mean, a few countries, including in Africa, have started a process of transition away from grant financing and started relying uh, much more, and also Dorte mentioned uh, earlier on, uh, on less concessional sources of finance. But what are the implications for, for that, in, in a, again, in a very simplified way? First of all, we're talking about falling aid volumes, and also bilateral donors tend to reinforce the behavior of multilateral development banks, especially after the graduation from IDA. With a certain degree of simplification, more gra fewer grants and more loans. And also, these loans tend to be less and less concessional 
professional with shorter uh, maturities and higher interest rates. But there's also another interesting point, which is around the, a change in composition uh, of external official finance. Uh, in a forthcoming report, we're going to publish that in a couple of months. Indeed, uh, we have seen that uh, official finance uh, tends to be allocated towards infrastructure, uh, at the expense of the social sectors, that actually countries move away from the low-income um, status. And that's a very interesting point because, first of all, it kind of reflects government's priorities, but also because governments are not particularly willing uh, to borrow for the social sectors. Let me go now to the second point uh, I kind of raised earlier on, which is uh, around the implications of Chinese lending for that sustainability. I mean, we, we heard earlier on, is Chinese lending uh, a threat to that sustainability? All in all, my kind of short answer is no, and probably we're kind of, uh, we're not raising the right question. I mean, of course, we have to look into this kind of particular area. I mean, there was an interesting graph uh, Dorte showed earlier on uh, around the composition of public debt. And uh, back in 2007, uh, uh, the composition of debt coming uh, from uh, non-pari club lender, including China, was 15%. Uh, if you're moving 10 years forward in 2016, uh, indeed, this share rose up to 30%. So this is certainly a kind of an area we need to look at. But what does motivate my negative answer? Um, I would say evidence and country-level analysis. I mean, looking at the literature also over the past decade, actually we haven't found much evidence supporting a kind of a threat of Chinese lending on that sustainability, and this is particularly the case of the effect on growth. But also citing uh, uh, Jubilee Debt Campaign report was cited earlier this morning. I'm citing Deborah Brotingham's uh, size carry policy brief that was released uh, um, ahead of the FOCAT meeting. That looked at the case of 17 countries, uh, potentially a risk distress uh, in, the, um, in the continent. And actually, this briefing finds that only three countries, notably DRC, Djibouti, and Zambia, can attribute most of the debt to China, while for all the other countries at high risk of that distress, uh, Chinese lending was uh, not the largest, but certainly one of the sources among many creditors. Indeed, uh, Chinese lending is one of the financing options. I mean, we used an expression a few years ago here at ODI calling it an age of choice for development finance. Countries do indeed have, in, have many more financing options they can choose from. And also Chinese lending takes very different kind of terms and conditions, interest-free loans, uh, concessional loans, uh, quasi-concessional loans, but still a relatively kind of low interest rates if compared to international capital markets. They contribute to productive investment. And if I can be provoked they fund projects that other development partners might not be willing to fund. So to me, as I said earlier on, uh, the problem is not necessarily about the source per se, and uh, this is why we're kind of asking probably the kind of uh, not the right question, uh, but the problem is around how we assess uh, uh, new financing options, uh, and in particular, how we manage that. That's a kind of a live motive throughout, actually, this panel. And we'll have an entire kind of session tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Uh, focusing on that. And I'll stop here. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, I mean, certainly, certainly the standout point there, and I'm sure we will debate that at length as your, as your quite categorical views on, on, on the, the sort of impact of Chinese lending. So I think, I think that's definitely worth discussing. Um, Greg, you, you 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 represent, I suppose, what what everyone is politely calling non-concessional finance. Although I suppose some of your investors have perhaps unwittingly discovered that they are, in fact, uh, concessional or, or a bit more concessional than they'd hoped to be in in some some of the countries. Um, uh, tell us, you know, how you see it. Um, first, I want to make the point that African economies are doing well. Um, they've been growing. Quality of life is improving. There's better infrastructure. Democracy is thriving. 
and there's consensus about better macro, low inflation, the need for fiscal buffers. All of this is very true over about the last 15 years. And capital inflows have been a really important part of this story. Um, but despite economic growth, domestic savings have stayed low. So how do you get the capital to fund people's health and education and infrastructure? And that's very important. But not all capital flows are equal. Best is foreign direct investment. Sort of debt is in the middle. And at the more worrying end for me is short-dated borrowing from overseas. You know, two, three-month T-bills. So I think we've rightly got a concern that there's a, about debt crisis could stall the progress, or even in some cases reverse some of this recent progress. And I would say that while it's good to be worried about the debt trajectory, there is still time for most of these countries to shift to a more sustainable borrowing path and make the right decisions. We're not there yet. So unless concessional sources of finance, um, the main point for me to note is over the last six years, it's got really more complex and there are many more different types of debt and many more different types of creditor. So we've got eurobonds, syndicated loans, we have China, India, the Gulf, and many other non-Paris club members. But it's also important to emphasize commercial lending to state-owned enterprises and foreign ownership of domestic debt, which I'll turn to in a moment. But first, eurobonds. So there's 20 African countries who have issued eurobonds, and I, I include Egypt, Morocco, and Tunisia. I don't want to split the continent with the SSA definition. And this outstanding stock is about $94 billion. So investors worldwide have $94 billion invested in African countries and their success. And 11 of these 20 countries still get concessional financing from the African Development Bank, from the World Bank, etc. And what's good about these types of financing is Eurobonds empower governments. They give sovereigns choice. And much like the budget support of 10, 15 years ago we spoke about in these rooms, they follow government systems. They don't bypass them like a donor project. But, and the only conditions attached to the Eurobonds are when they must be repaid and how much. And another strength of Eurobonds is that all the information is public. They're often traded. And while liquidity can be limited at times, you know what the yields are, you know the price, you know the terms and conditions. You can bring that on, up on a screen in a, in a matter of seconds. Now, the trouble with Eurobonds on the other side is that they can be expensive. We've talked about high cost of interest rates, very high coupons, especially in the latter rounds of Eurobond issuance. A few countries came to the markets before the financial crisis, a few in the years after, but more recently it's got more pricey for African Eurobond issuers to come to the markets. The coupons are, however, fixed. We know what they are. The coupon is 7%, it remains 7%. So there's a bit of difference between the, the, the LIBOR plus risk loans of the 1980s that were funded by petrodollars, and actually the interest rate risk is lower because the coupon is fixed. But the key risk for me is that they're typically issued in United States dollars or euros. And this is where the major problem is. Investors like these bonds because they don't have to worry about exchange rate risk. But exchange rate risk hasn't gone away. It's with the sovereign. And that is the key challenge of this asset class. And then there's large refinancing risk. Concessional lending usually takes 30 years and there are a drip of payments across that period. Same with Chinese loans, amortizing over 15, 18 years, a little bit of a time. But Eurobonds mature in a single day quite often. The first wave is 10-year paper that must be paid back on a single day. Although more recently, we've seen Eurobonds that are amortizing or being paid back over three years, reducing that burden somewhat. And 
Also importantly is that this market access we've seen since the global financial crisis is like a window that has opened, but this all window can close at times. And for many of the lower income countries, they need to keep a careful look on how the markets are doing. So even if they did everything right, the markets may not be open to them. Good signs for me, a longer dated paper. If you see the issuance in early 2018, we saw lots of 30-year bonds being issued by African countries. And this is very important. Because I remember asking people in 2012-13 saying, 10 years, well, this is an infrastructure loan, so can't it be longer? And people said, no, a uh, sovereign of this credit rating can't get long paper. But luckily, this myth has com been completely debunked over the last couple of years. And we've seen many, many countries come in and get 30-year paper this year, which gives them a chance to grow. So in summary for Eurobonds, I think the biggest risks are exchange rate risk and repayment risk. Then we've got syndicated loans. Some of these I can track easily. Some of them are really difficult. And they tend to be shorter term, fairly expensive like Eurobonds. Uh, Kenya and recently Uganda, example, of countries that have taken them. But they're still very small. It's the, bond, the issuance of bonds is much larger. Um, then what I want to go on to is a source of vulnerabilities. There's two here that I find very important. First is foreign ownership of domestic debt, like T-bills and bonds. 33% of Ghana's domestic debt is held by foreigners. 17% of Zambia's local bonds are held by foreigners. And it's only really Nigeria, South Africa, and Egypt that have got that short-term debt. But this really worries me in terms of building vulnerabilities from the different sources. But some of the most vulnerable to debt crisis, in my view, are those with more mysterious liabilities. And I'm not thinking about Mozambique-style hidden debts here and conspiracy, although there are tail risks. Um, they're, they're the... The, the public entities that are borrowing. And often these debts are only debt after an event. They're not debt now, but if something happens, they become debt. And these shocks are the things that make debt jump. Exchange rate changes and the realisation of a contingent liability is where you see a big shift in your debt ratios. So in, exam in answer to the vulnerability question, I look at those SOE liabilities. And we like indicators such as debt service to revenue and external debt to exports much more than we like straightforward debt to GDP ratios. And on, just lastly on monitoring, um, this complexity has created a huge challenge in what we need to do to monitor debt. And for me, the centre of this is the borrowing country. It has to be the sovereign's job to monitor debt. We've got so many different types of lender, so many different types of product, but the only person involved in all of these things is the sovereign. So they have a huge responsibility. And when I look at these debt sustainability analysis and the credit ratings we have in the markets, these are forward-looking, and to me they're very much an art, not a science. It's very difficult to get these things right, and we should be aware of the fact that they're not foolproof. Um, and then lastly, the, we talked a little bit about restructuring today. And China's come up. I was at the Paris Club in May. China was there as an observer, which is a great step. But it's not there and reporting yet. And this will make the next round of restructuring all the more complicated. And I think what we need to do is probably have a system that brings in China, in Saudi Arabia, and India. And it probably needs a huge revision of the international architecture. And perhaps to get all lenders to the table, we need the Paris Club needs to evolve and expand so much so that we should maybe call it the Delhi Club or the Jakarta Club or something new and move on from the 1956 arrangements. But there's, um, and I, I just want to say one thing about Africa as well, is that in the time I've been following, I think there's been 
an amazing improvement in the, the quality of reporting and journalism. And to me, this is very important to things like Mozambique. Investigative journalists, the ones that find out it wasn't a tuna ship, it was a, an anti-pirate ship. And these are very important things. And 10 years ago, at least in the United Kingdom, you know, I was reading sort of media about comic relief and disaster. Now I re can read on a really complex article on a monetary policy committee meeting and find out the intricacies of local debt on many, many different sovereigns. And this starts with good data. It, it's followed by reporting. And once that information's out there, the journalists, the think tanks, and all the different stakeholders can do their work. So transparency is important, but we've only just got to get a little bit of data out there and people are prepared to run with it. Great. Well, th thank you. And I, 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 I think... Uh, what was really useful was your, your drill down, you know, sort of not just into the composition of the debt, but also uh, who some of the holders may be. So, uh, and as, as you rightly point out, what are the risks involved in uh, seemingly low-risk local currency debt when it, when it is perhaps uh, held by foreign investors? So I think, again, that's, that's a thought we should try and carry through. But I'm going to hand over to Fanwell because... Uh, you, you, you've heard everyone. <laughs> How does this resonate from where you're sitting? Uh, thank you very much. Um, I think I would start from agreeing with a lot of people who actually said that Africa needs the funds for its development. But I also agree with the people that actually says that Africa is facing a debt crisis. <clears throat> but the question is, whose crisis is it? Is it for the creditor or the debtor? Is it a crisis because if Africa borrows more, they will not be able to repay, so it's the other person on the other side who is more worrying about, worried about his repayments rather than the guy who is borrowing to invest in its productive capacity? That's a different question if you look at it from different angles. And I say that because in order for us to understand the politics, so I'm going to focus more on the politics of land. I think there are a lot of... A lot of people here who sit, who understand the technicalities of debt. But I'm going to dive in from the politics of debt from the continent. So let us start from the beginning. <clears throat> um, Greg has said a lot by saying that, and I want us to understand that before 2004, apart from Egypt and a few, a few North African countries, it was only South Africa in the Sub-Saharan Africa which could actually raise a euro bond that any sane, I use the word sane, investor would actually go and buy. Suddenly, between 2004 to 2016, suddenly these sane creditors became so insane that they lent to over 12 African countries when the macroeconomic conditions on the continent did not change that significantly. So the question, whose problem was it? Now, the factors are the global financial crisis of 2008 created a situation where there were low interest rates in the normal markets. And you and me sat down here in the, in the early 2000, 2008, but right after the global crisis, when every newspaper you read was about Africa rising. The fastest growing economies in that decade were from Africa. So it created a fertile ground for the creditors to actually put money where the interest rates were high. I explain this because it explains the politics of how we're going to deal with this crisis. But at the same time, because of the policies of the IMF and the World Bank, 
that actually focused more on the softer issues of development, the social investments, there was a huge neglect of infrastructure investment on the continent. So you found countries, on one side you found creditors who have available money to give. On the other side, you found debtors who actually had huge investments needs in infrastructure. That marriage was made in heaven, and no one was going to break it. And that's why we saw these rises in those dates. The other thing was that the success of the HIPIC and MDRI created another conducive environment where these countries that had high debt-to-GDP ratios were reduced, and then they had the capacity. So that capacity allowed a lot of those countries to go to the international market, which other people actually call they became frontier markets. The question I ask most of the time is, should we repay our debts? And this is a very good question for our, my African leaders. Are we borrowing to invest so that we grow in order to repay the debts? Because if we are doing that, and I put a big if, then I don't see a crisis on the continent. Because we are investing in the productive capacities for us to actually grow. The other thing was that the debt sustainability framework itself that the IMF and the World Bank used was a sort of an indicator to creditors. If, if the IMF say you are on low risk of default, the whole world actually says to you, we can loan you money. And now we know, after the revision of the 2017, that a lot of those projections were off the mark. So on one hand, you had a projection that actually gave security to the creditor that you can loan to this country, when actually, in reality, those were off the mark. And I'm glad that the IMF and the World Bank has revised its framework. We are not completely happy, some of us. We still think some of those indicators are completely um, irrelevant to the, to the discussion, but that's a discussion for another day. Now, let me talk about the politics of, of, of debt on the continent. I want you to understand the democratic nature of the continent. We have become experts at conducting regular elections. Now, whether they are free and fair, that's a debate for another day. But we have become so routine in conducting these elections. And because of the expectation of democracy, there is an expectation to deliver to the people. Now, if I sit as a president, and I know that no matter what happens, I'll only be here in 10 years. And after 10 years, my term will go. Even if I want to stay, I'll be chased out. What do I do? I borrow even if I know the risks of borrowing. Because I want to get the re-election, and when this is going to be repaid, I'll be long dead if I look at most of the ages of my presidents, or I'll be out of government. That is an incentive. And when people talk about accountability and transparency, there is an issue about parliaments. There is, if you count so many trainings, the IMF, the World Bank, MEFME, and everybody has given parliamentarians on how to do this, we don't need any capacity building. If you look at the number of experts that have been working on this, we don't need any capacity building. We need to understand the politics on the continent. The politics on the continent is such that if you are a member of parliament, who needs a road in your village in order for you to get re-elected? You are not going to look at debt to GDP ratio. Your focus is on that vote on the next election. Unless we, we strengthen that accountability mechanism and making people aware of what are the implications of getting that debt 
and people holding their uh, elected officials accountable will deal with this. So I'm not disputing the technicalities of where we can argue about that GDP ratio is high, there is a risk for the politician, all that is nonsense. It is the next election, and when you look at the, the benefits between being elected and not being elected on the continent, the opportunity cost of you not having an election and being elected is so high that you don't care about repayment that's going to happen in 30 years, and most of the time you will not be there. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think you, you, you highlighted some, some key points there that, that will also be a ripe ground for conversation. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I'm going to start taking some questions in a few minutes. I'd like you to, uh, and I'll take them in groups of four, and we can then allocate them to the panel. Uh, I'd like you to just share who you are and what your affiliation is uh, with us when, when, when the questions come around and the mics go around. But while you're gathering your thoughts and... Uh, and getting, getting your questions together. I'm just going to first give the floor to uh, Ms. Chen Wang for some initial comments. Uh, Chen is the Assistant Re Research Fellow uh, at the Institute of International Development Cooperation, the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation in the Ministry of Commerce uh, in Beijing. So uh, uh, Chen, oh, there we go. Thank you, Chair. It's a very informative <laughs> session and a lot of um, discussions are directed at uh, the new lenders, including China. And um, I want to make two comments. Um, um, but I think we can all agree that any country uh, needs financing support at the uh, economic takeoff phase, especially uh, at the initial stage uh, of, uh, of uh, industrialization. And um, this is also China's experience um, uh, when uh, developing China's industries and uh, experiencing economic takeoff, uh, we benefited from mobilizing uh, resources, uh, mobilizing capital, uh, though mainly uh, it's domestic capital. This brings to my first uh, comment, which is when China is providing, uh, you know, doing lending, um, we, China also draws upon its own experience of uh, development. Uh, you know, uh, after the opening door policy, uh, the local government borrowed to invest in mainly infrastructures. Why do they do that? They do that to attract capital, to attract investment. But investment come not for the infrastructure, but for industry development or the potential of industry development, which is why the investment in infrastructure it always goes hand in hand with um, industry policies and with economic reform. That's what the local governments or that's what China did. Um, and it's not just the infrastructure, but more importantly, the policy environment that uh, ca can attract more capital um, and to develop, uh, in some cases, for example, processing trade um, to increase uh, 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 to increase revenue to to improve uh, uh, employment. Um, so when when China is, you know, 
transferring this experience overseas. That's what China might, I'd figure, to expect, um, you know, to invest in infrastructure. But in some countries, this worked. In some other countries, it didn't. Because, well, we, we'd expect in, uh, industries to develop, we'd expect industrial policies to be in place, but um, they are not that preferential. So capital didn't come in or um, the industries didn't develop. And this is also a learning uh, process uh, for, uh, for China as well, I think. And also because the um, lending are towards you know, single projects and there is, China has this non-interference uh, foreign policy or no strings attached policy. So it's not for in China's place, uh, I think, uh, for China to ask a certain country or a certain borrower to, you know, change their uh, economic policy just solely because we lend to, to fund one of their infrastructure projects. So this is also uh, one of one of the issues that I want to bring uh, attention to, and second, I think um, for the new lenders, they could also benefit from uh, internal uh, information sharing and reporting of their internal uh, process. I mean, among their own departments. Um, uh, so that they could lower the the, the risk of uh, uh, you know the the risk of um, uh, uh, you know sort of bad <laughs> lending, um, and uh, I'd imagine I don't know if that's also uh, a, a difficulty for some of the traditional lenders. You know, among your own uh, departments, the information sharing and the cap capacity building in that area. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I, I think two two key points there about uh, that we can perhaps come back to as well. Uh, uh, sort of the role of the space for conditionality in in, 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 in lending and, and programs and information sharing, and perhaps that's a challenge that we that we throw back to the uh, the, the MFIs about how well they're doing that. But uh, I'm going to go around to some questions. Uh, so, so uh, could we have number one over here, and then and then Dirk number two. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Shao from, from China as well. Just a follow-up question, uh, because there are, these days there are a lot of debates uh, on the One Belt, One Road initiative China has put forward. Uh, and at the same time, we have heard from the Americans that they, uh, they might be thinking about a new uh, strategy towards Africa. So I, I don't know, uh, how do you look at the uh, the involvement in African affairs from the uh, China, Africa, or Japan, or the other uh, powers? Do you think it like a, a competition, or do you think there should be a platform for these powers to cooperate on the development issues in Africa? Dirk, number two, and if there are any other hands, I can stack you. Okay, and then number three. Uh, thank you very much, and fascinating discussion. I'm Dirk Tevelder from the Overseas Development Institute. Uh, discussing debt dynamics, I think it's all about growth strategies, isn't it? Growth and transformation strategies. That's really what it's all about. Um, it's all well to be issuing bonds. Um, that's fine, as long as it's being channeled to, the, channeled to the right areas that can create growth and transformation for the longer run. 
And there are some challenges and some opportunities there. So, I mean, I've got a book here, Made in Africa, uh, by uh, Arkeba Okubai, thinking about uh, Ethiopia's uh, in, in industrial policy issuing bonds for industrial parks, for example. You know that there's, it's going to be used for industrialization. Well, you can talk a bit about that, but at least there's some growth in that uh, particular country. Uh, Rwanda issued a bond, uh, it goes to conference center. Lots of conferences happening, uh, probably generates money. You know that it's, 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 it's happening somewhere, it goes to the services sector. In other countries, you don't know where the, where the receipts are going to. You just don't know what, whether it's going to be used for for um, uh, for transformation, and that's and, and it's really about whether there's a credible strategy. So I'm really concerned about these numbers that were put out about growth uh, growth numbers going forwards. 1.7 percent or whatever GDP per capita numbers are really low. Of course, there's some countries that do well. Maybe not a problem. You can monetize your debt away. You can transform your economy and uh, and 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 think about uh, growth. It's fine. But for those countries where you have low growth, that's where there is really a problem. And it's just one one other issue that perhaps for debt dynamics we haven't talked about is everybody is expecting a, uh, a global recession in 2020. Just when debt to GDP, uh, not everybody, but some are uh, <laughs> are, are are thinking about it. Um, and the, there are structural problems with with policies. There are some uh, uh, issues coming up. And just when uh, debt to GDP ratios are going up in some countries, in African countries. The external market, global market, also is going to face some troubles. So, isn't that going to be a double whammy at that particular point? And shouldn't we be doubly concerned at that particular point in time? Thank you. We had a uh, hand over here. Can we have a mic in the back row over here, please? Uh, wave, wave your hand vigorously. So, thank you. And if there's one more, I can take one more in this. Okay, and then. Uh, thanks. Uh, am I audible? Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Sivu from South Africa in the National Treasury. Uh, thanks so much for the interesting discussion. Uh, I have a few points, you know, I don't know who to direct them to, but anyone can, can, can indulge me on this. I think on, on, on debt dynamics in particular, uh, and I may be biased because I may link this to the South African case, there tends to be this obsession around debt to GDP numbers and link that to 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 the affordability of the issuer in in in, in refinancing uh, outstanding debt as it falls due. I, I think there's a problem with that and I'm not sure what your view is but I would appreciate if we can interrogate this because I believe uh, it's it's a myth. It's a myth because my argument within South Africa is that we can't liquidate GDP. What is GDP, right, in, in, in relation to debt? Debt is a liability. GDP is not an asset. And we've conducted studies in South Africa in this regard as to to what extent is your revenue linked to GDP. Right, and you raise you raise important points, uh, my brother over there. And there's an important dynamic that we've observed, and that of low interest rates or the need for carry trades that have drawn funds into emerging markets. Africa has not been spared, and there hasn't been anything tangible on the ground. Of course, people may produce uh, rosy GDP numbers, which are estimates, by the way. And estimates can speak to what you want. So it's easy to predict the weather if you are making it, I would argue. Uh, then the, the question then arises, you know, to what end? 
uh, we've observed a worrying trend that of uh, pension funds buying less and less of, of our bonds, local pension funds, and the weight has been skewed toward non-resident investors. We, we celebrate that because it deepens the local financial market system, but what happens when those funds need to go back home? You know, uh, then, then those who are swimming naked, they get exposed, I would imagine because the tide now would, would move against them. So I think, I, think I, I would appreciate if we touch on these issues as to how should we respond, because we need to respond urgently. If you have, in our case, as much as 40% of our local debt in the hands of non-resident investors and pension funds hold only less than 30% of our own local debt, there are serious implications in this regard. Thank you. Thank you, Sifu. Would you mind passing? We've got one, one more question. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, Baba Musa again um, from YFM. I, I want to actually uh, respond to uh, Annalisa's uh, uh, issue uh, concerning the, the, the Chinese loans. And of course, uh, Greg also with uh, the, the financing coming from um, uh, commercial creditors. Uh, especially the sovereign bond. Now, the issue uh, with, uh, uh, with with these loans, as as we see from the the African perspective, uh, is actually not the, the the financier, but the leakages that are associated with the governance arrangement of those kind of financing. And if you look at the history of uh, the financing that we have had in the past that led to the debt relief. Uh, quite, of, quite a substantial part of it uh, was as associated with, with poor governance arrangement uh, in the financing. And of course, uh, when you look at the, the current uh, you know, uh, structure of the, the, the Chinese loans and uh, those coming uh, from the sovereign bond, in many cases, uh, these uh, loans that uh, allow the politicians to manipulate the, the usage of, of the loan, uh, not to direct it to where they actually uh, are meant for, but they, they go to somewhere else. And that's the, the problem with the loans. And uh, secondly, uh, uh, the, the Chinese loans usually also come with associated, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, tight uh, issues. Uh, some of them, for instance, if you, even if they're financing infrastructure, in many cases uh, do not result to uh, immediate employment. They come with associated uh, strength on them. They come with uh, uh, their laborers, even if it means uh, you know uh, laying uh, rail. Uh, it is the Chinese laborers that will come and, and, and lay the, the. So the immediate impact of those kind of loans on the economy is not felt. So those are the problems when you look deep into the, the kind of uh, financing. If you compare them with the multilateral, they have much more structural, uh, structured uh, uh, checks and, and balances. And our politicians find it easy to, to just get into uh, uh, do, do, those uh, uh, k k kind of uh, loans. So yeah, those arrangements. So I think this, these are the, the issues of concern uh, for us in, in Africa. Thank you. Very much. I, th so I, th I think we've got a few sort of chunks of questions. I'm going to, I'm going to tentatively allocate them. But if, if anyone has very strong feelings on the panel, uh, so, so, so I think we've, uh, we've we've got sort of two sets of questions around China. The one relating to, to I suppose, the politics of of competition and and, and geostrategy, and then the second relating to uh, 
governance arrangements and, and, and leakages. Uh, and, and I'd like to, to put that to Annalisa and, and, and Fanwell, and then we can move on to, to some of the others. So in terms of the question around uh, competition versus collaboration, I'm, I'm saying something that is quite known to everyone. I mean, the continent has financing needs. So in a sense, uh, the more financiers, the better. To me, it's, I mean, I won't be able to answer a kind of question around competition or collaboration. This is a one billion uh, kind of question. Even if I think about the collaboration across the IFIs, it's an old kind of standing question. To me, is whether we keep uh, uh, governments actually to play the game across the different kind of uh, providers. So are they, do they have a kind of clear strategy when they negotiate with the different kind of funders? So do they have a clear idea of the terms and conditions? I think the ball is the kind of uh, in the government's hands. I mean, I kind of started earlier on this kind of project at ODI, an age of choice for development finance. And actually, we looked across uh, quite a few sub-Saharan African countries, and some of them actually have a very kind of strong idea of what they want. Uh, they knew about the different partners and they were able to actually to withdraw loans. Uh, if they didn't meet the requirements uh, they asked for. So again, to reiterate, the kind of ball goes back uh, um, to, to the governments themselves. On the question around the Chinese lending, I mean, uh, um, I won't elaborate too much, but there's one, one point. I mean, I might challenge you in terms of the kind of impact on employment. I mean, of course, when we're talking about China, we're oversimplifying, as usual. Uh, um, Chinese contractors are also kind of major implementers of projects uh, by the international financial institutions. And actually, there are plenty of a kind of examples. Um, actually, one of the recent ones was in Liberia on a kind of uh, um, output-based performance road project. And actually, it was praised because the Chinese contractor actually um, developed a local workforce and kind of left uh, um, actually skills uh, um, uh, directly in the country. So I take your point, but there's certainly kind of some kind of uh, examples to counter that argument. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I sometimes start by, by this, this example from, from Kenya. So I went to Kenya uh, and, and on this famous, you know, railway line that everyone talks about China. And one of my friends actually complained and actually said, the problem is that even the instructions are in Chinese. So I posed the question to him and said, what's the problem? If they were in English, would you complain? Because English is not Kenya's language. It is actually an imported language. So the guy said, I said, if, you, if the English came and did it in Kiswahili, and then the Chinese are doing it in Chinese, I would complain. But I think we have, we have also a colonial legacy that actually defines the way we think. And that is, that is very, very important. So I actually characterize our leaders that they, they have a victim mentality. So I give this example. I, I normally end with the example. I give this example of a beautiful girl in a village. Those of you from Africa, you know that you have to pay Lobola to get this beautiful girl. I give the example of a beautiful girl who physically everyone agrees that she's so beautiful, but mentally she thinks she's an orphan. And then another similar looking girl who actually thinks she's a princess. When a man comes to this girl who thinks he's an orphan, they will look at it as a favor that they want to marry her. If a man comes to this one who is a princess, she will dictate the terms of how she gets married. And I think that's exactly the problem with our leaders. Sometimes we don't know 
where to stand. We have a victim mentality. We have that orphan mentality. So we go there, and then when this guy says, oh, this is what I need, we don't realize that we have that power to actually say, if you come to my country, I need you to have 10% of the workers. Because across Africa, I've, I've gone to Ethiopia. The Chinese are doing massive construction in Ethiopia. I don't see the same number of Chinese laborers in Ethiopia. I see them in Zambia. So the conclusion for me is, have we decided what we want as a continent? I think that's where we, should, we need to take the debate. What conditions do we actually make? And I always end with this example. I started here in the United Kingdom. I was at, at Canterbury in Kent. I came here in 2001. In 2001, when I went to Tesco's, the ruler that I would get, everything I used for my education was made in Africa. I mean, made in China. But when I went home, everyone was saying Chinese products are useless. The point I asked, but it's the same ruler that was allowed in the UK. Why is it useless in Malawi? It was because in the UK, the Chinese know that in order to send that ruler to Tesco, it must meet certain standards. In my country, no one tells them about the standards, so they dump whatever. It's the same with debt. If we get our act correct, and that's why I always say we need to begin to hold our people accountable. We need to have this debate about what is good debt, what are we using it for, and hold our people accountable. I don't think Africa should choose between China and the West. I think that is a battle that they should fight in another arena, but they shouldn't use us. What we should choose is what type of loans do we need for us to develop? And if we can define that as a continent, we will win the battle. Thank you. Great. Uh, so the other, I suppose the other uh, questions are grouped really around uh, uh, Dirk's comment about the, the global macro environment. Uh, I, I think like him, I've, I've predicted 10 of the last two recessions, uh, so I'm sympathetic uh, of, of, of his view. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and, and I suppose the second thing is, is my, my South African compatriots question about is debt to GDP the relevant relevant matter or should we be looking at uh, other, other measures and, and, and I suppose other other points of agency and I'm, I'm, I suppose sh should, should we start with you on, on, on uh, the latter I suppose uh. okay sure yeah the global macro I mean we are at an uncertain time okay. there's obviously trade tensions you know polite definition, there's trade tensions that are out there, that are elevated. Um, how they resolve will affect a lot of what goes forward. Right? Um, and not just between US and China, but that will also have incredible spillovers for all parts of the world. Uh, and in, you know, when we look at it for, for Sub-Saharan Africa, I mean, even the initial simulations we do, I mean, yes, I mean, in terms of the direct impacts on trade, not so much, but where the impact comes is that once you start messing with those relationships, you start messing with commodity markets and then commodity prices as the channel where a lot filters through to the continent. Um, are we necessarily heading to a recession? No. Um, are there risks that could put us there? Yes. Um, but there always are. Um, so certainly between you know, the commodity prices and you know, other external factors, right? I mean, we've also been watching um, interest rates start to rise in the advanced economies. Um, that affects the supply of capital. And as it was mentioned, you know, when we're starting looking at the time to refinance the euro bonds, when they start falling due, it's about 2020, 2022, right? That's you know, when suddenly, if that is when the markets are tightening, then yes, those rollover risks and things become much more pertinent. Um, but no, I mean, don't have to be in a global crisis. You know? Yes, we, we predict many. Um, hopefully, we'll steer away from this. Um, in terms of yeah, debt-to-GDP ratio, 
what I was hoping to do also with my first slide was try to get people away from debt to GDP. Because for me, the issue, and I think this came up also particularly on, on the, the growth question from Doug, um, growth and, and revenues, those are the key components looking forward. If the economy is not getting growth from um, whatever development strategy is there, then there is a big problem. Um, it's not just you know, the usual debt-to-GDP ratios. I mean, one of the big things also facing the continent is the demographics that are there. Um, populations are still expanding very rapidly. Um, the calculations we do show that for the last 10 years, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa has generated maybe 10 million jobs a year. Given the way that demographics are structured, that has to increase to 18 to 20 million over the next decade or so. Um, that's a huge change. The nature of the economies have to change. That includes you know, the structural transformation of agenda, diversification, whatever you call it. But certainly, you know, growth has to be part of that component. Um, one, one aspect that I guess I would disagree with in terms of the risks, this issue of how much of the local debt is owned locally versus internationally. Um, the fact that you know, the local pension funds are not parking all their assets in government bonds is in many ways a good thing. Right? It's a portfolio diversification strategy for them. Um, and the fact that you, know, you are attracting capital into the markets and you know, there are investors out there who want to purchase um, South African government instruments, again, it potentially is a good thing. As you say, you have to keep an eye on you know, when things mature. There is this currency mismatch, um, swimming naked, as you put it. Um, you need to keep an eye on those kind of issues, but you know, that is manageable. Um, but again, it's one of those things that you know, debt is a hugely complex thing. You really need to look at all kinds of dimensions. Great. Could we, could we, I suppose, stay on roughly the same topic, which is just composition and, and, and holders of debt? Uh. Perhaps let me add to it. I mean, I think, yes, in the long term, the important thing is the growth trajectory and domestic resource mobilization. But in many countries in, 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 in Africa, some of the loans that are taken on for public investment are very large in terms of GDP. And I think there it's very important to look very carefully what is actually the growth and the revenue impact of these loans. <coughs> so public sector investment management is critically important. And um, so yes, it's, it, that can be very, it, or is indeed very important for development, but it's important to use it wisely. And that goes to in terms of looking for what one borrows, but it's also to look at the the cost risk profile of the different instruments. And the more expensive your debt is, the more growth or revenues, et cetera, you need to generate for um, it not to affect negatively your debt burden trajectory, however you measure it. <laughs> and, and so looking at the trade-offs and doing this analysis well and thinking through and implementing the debt management strategies that really look at the cost risk portfolio, I think is particularly important now combined, of course, with sound macrofiscal frameworks. So, so uh, just to add, so, um, so it's not, it, it's not growth, debt and growth are inherently linked, um, and it, it's careful to, 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 choose, to yeah. choose your debt wisely. C can I just push you on one, one point, because it has come up a few times, which is just, and w without asking you to be too indiscreet or, 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 or uh, you know, talk about worked examples in, in terms of countries, but this, this, this idea of kind of governance leakage or sort of race to the bottom as, as uh, uh, potential borrowers have sort of greater, greater diversity and, and, and choice. I mean, is that something that, that you see or, or can, are concerned by? I mean, it's good uh, for countries to have choices, and it's good uh, 
for countries to have, uh, to have options to borrow. The important thing is to, as I said, to ver very carefully assess the costs and risks and go for those choices that, that make sense in a specific context and that are aligned with the um, medium-term objective <laughs> of the government and to carefully use the loans for the right of, uh, use it wisely. So if, if you want to um, contract a large loan for infrastructure investment, it's important that it's a sound infrastructure investment that can be expected to generate growth and revenues going <coughs> forward rather than building a road to nowhere. And, and, and Greg, I'm just going to bring you in very briefly, uh, in particular on the sort of race for the exits. How, how, how concerning is that? Uh, and, and perhaps a, a, a brief view on, on potentially how markets are seeing uh, uh, you know, sort of the interest rate outlook and, and uh, the, the kind of macro picture. Yeah, certainly, there's, I think for all crisis, you need, you need vulnerabilities and a trigger. And, and those triggers are different looking back over time. So sometimes it's a strong dollar, sometimes it's high US rates, and sometimes it's other things. So what we've seen in 2018 was a very good start to the year where everyone was, was very confident and there were a lot of inflows into the emerging market funds. And the dollar was actually still sort of on a downwards trajectory at the start of February. But then all this changes in March and, and sort of March to September were, were really tough for emerging market investors. People started wanting their money back. So they were having to pull money out of all these funds as um, the US dollar strengthened, as the US rates crept, the 10-year yield crept towards 3% where it's been for most of the last couple of months. And that doesn't, you know, you, you could be growing at 7.5% in in sub-Saharan Africa and doesn't matter, that's, that's, how, that's how this year's worked. And it got particularly worse as people lost money in Turkey and then Argentina. And immediately as people sort of priced what they owned after the Argentina crisis, they, they thought, right, what's next? I've got to avoid that and quickly looked for countries with current account deficits and made very quick decisions. So all of that happened in 2018 and then, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat stabilised with some of the major hit to other asset classes, but you're just part of that cycle once you're in the markets. And, and, and sort of who are the investors is an important question that comes up. And I think there are investors who will buy a Eurobond and hold it for 10 years or longer. But then there's a lot of retail investors. There's lots of different types that cross over between the United States or advanced economies to EM. And, and, and some people are picking up sort of generic emerging market investments and don't really mind or in some ways don't care what countries are in that basket. They're just buying into this emerging market growth story and they'll chop and change very quickly. So your, your book's very different and at different times and, and, and what, what's going to be really tough for African countries is, as they return to the markets in this episode is that you're, you're part of the world now in the sense that you have to deal with these, with these good times and these bad times and, it, and, and I think on, 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 a more, on a more positive note, since the East Asian crisis, there's, there's sort of consensus that your macro should be good, even if you're not there yet. There's a consensus that you should have fiscal buffers, even if not, you're not there yet. And now that there's people not obsessively pushing for, to remove capital controls, you might be able to push back on some of those really aggressive short-term flows and only accept some of the more steady investors that come in and provide you those opportunities. Great. Uh, I'm going to try and see if we've got time for, for another few quick questions. So, uh, okay, we have one hand over here. Uh, okay, in fact, since you're close, I could, we, could we start over here in the middle? Uh, oh, right, lots of hands coming up quickly. Okay, if I could ask you all to keep your comments quite... Uh, so in, in the middle here, please. There we go.
Yeah, question for Thelma. You, men you mentioned about the, you know, the effects of um, port, port battle politics, uh, but that's hardly um, you know, a phenomenon that's limited to Africa. I think we see that in almost all, uh, all, all political systems. And of course, it's something that originated in, in the US, a phrase that originated in the US in the 19th century, and so it's almost as old as democracy itself. Um, but uh, maybe, might I suggest that um, in some other countries, the, f the levels of public debt are a, an issue in elections and a part of the voting patterns. And I'm wondering what could be done within Africa to to embed that within uh, voters' concerns when they make make uh, democratic choices. Great. Uh, there was some. Whoops. Okay. An another. Uh, if we could bring the mic over here to the front row, please. Yeah. Uh, just uh, an interesting one for 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 my dear my dear um, lady, uh, with respect to the DSF. All right. Um, I want to go back to my earlier submission with Madam, when Madam was presenting, um, particularly when it comes to how do we project domestic revenue within the, the DSF uh, uh, arrangement. We know that given the track record of uh, um, revenue to GDP in Africa, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's quite a challenge. For instance, it has been, it has uh, averaged 12, 11, 12% for the longest, okay? It's only now we are pushing for 14, 15% of GDP, all right? So the challenge we have, we are talking about um, borrowing to finance capital projects. Let's assume we will have done our analysis, um, feasibility studies pointing towards a, a positive return on this particular project. We are able to factor the capital cost. We, we can determine the capital cost. But how do we translate that into, of course we can even factor that into GDP because once you, you you simulate um, increased spending, capital investments, you can sort of factor that into GDP. But my concern is the, the, the liquidity capacity of countries to service the debt. Debt, uh, uh, debt service to revenue, debt service to export. How do we f translate this? Uh, as the assumption is a very promising capital project for which we want to borrow for. We have done all our analysis. But it's like, it's sticky. To what extent will the DFS allows or country donors that allow African to factor, to project increased revenue coming from this uh, potential financing with, uh, with debt of this uh, mega project. That's just the challenge. I don't know how best you guys can help us to, 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 yeah, to navigate that path. Behind you, uh, right over here. Uh, so ro second row, please. Uh, hi, this is Jaime from Oxfam. Quick question. I was interested in what you mentioned, Greg, on uh, this idea that uh, it's not possible to pretend we can have a, a full negotiation around the IFIs and the Paris Club. We want the new members uh, around, around the table. I had this same message coming from uh, inside an IMF room some months back saying we're not going to be able to be the, the deal uh, makers here. Uh, that can be discussed, but have you seen any actual uh, political movements that would indicate that such a reflection is uh, kind of moving towards reality? Are we seeing like the G20 as a, as a space where that can start to play out? Or are we seeing something like this or, or it's just an intuition for the moment? Thanks, and I'm going to take one, uh, oh, there we go, thank you. 
Tim Jones from the Jubilee Debt Campaign. When we started warning six years ago that there uh, might be a new round of debt crises across the global south, one of the things we pointed at was that the countries that are most dependent on external lending were actually seeing their dependence on commodity exports increase. And when we talk about infrastructure, even if infrastructure is built through loans, if it is just to extract commodities for export, that's not helping in the diversification strategy. My direct question for the IMF and World Bank is, do you now allow governments to follow active intervention policies to enable diversification out of commodities and into industrialization? Great. Thank you. I think I'm, I'm going I'm to pause the questions there, or in fact, uh, call a halt. And uh, we've discussed poor governance. I'm going to uh, give a worked example of, uh, of, of uh, uh, presidents staying in uh, a little longer than they should, perhaps, uh, by uh, unilaterally extending the time of a session by another five minutes. So um, <laughs> uh, let, let's take these questions uh, backwards. So let's start with Tim's uh, on, on, on uh, uh, you know, Ghibli's concerns about diversification. So should we start here? Okay, sure. I mean, the the concerns on diversification obviously became much more acute when the commodity price started to collapse. And we realized that a whole lot of commodity exporters who had a development strategy that was anchored on you know, commodity exports with a massively booming price. And so naturally they had invested more and more of their economy in precisely that commodity, suddenly found themselves holding something where there was a huge adjustment needed. Um, Angola, for example, um, back in 2013, government revenues were 39% of GDP. By 2016, they'd fallen to 17%. Right? Enormous change in the economy and the outlook. Um, when you look at the non-resource dependent economies, you actually see quite a lot of diversification and structural transformation has actually occurred on the continent. The key component was just you know, these commodity exporters who you know, were, were running the commodity boom. And certainly now, what we're seeing I mean, I'm not sure I'd say we had never allowed. <laughs> uh, I think there is clearly an understanding that you know, the diverse, diversification story has to be sold much more. Um, and we have seen several countries implement measures, including in the context of IMF programs, that were designed specifically, or could be labeled active industrial policy in the, in the old school world, um, including, for example, setting up you know, the special economic zones and those kind of things where you know, often there, there are concerns as to how you manage them, and there are still concerns as to how you manage them, but you know, there are ways of designing them and looking for more opportunities like that to specifically stimulate some diversification. Uh, Dorsa, I'm, I'm going to bring you in, uh, if you'd like to add something on, on this particular question, but also perhaps on, on uh, revenue projections and, and uh, you know, benefit analyses. So I think the question on economic diversification is a very good question, uh, and it's, it's a very important one. It's very difficult to achieve economic di diversification over time. So the de bank is providing a lot of uh, advice and assistance on, on um, economic diversification, also through in some areas, also focusing on specific sectors. I think the, the, the key are special economic zone. The important thing, I think, to keep in mind on industrial policy that you don't want to uh, promote reforms that create an unequal playing field among players. So you don't want to use industrial policy in a way that it creates rents. Uh, so the important thing is uh, thinking through an economic diversification st strategy that can help boost uh, economic diversification uh, even f by even promoting kind of critical areas or even sectors, but in a way 
that, that it, it maintains an, an equal playing field uh, among the different um, players in the economy. I think that's, that, that's, that's I think the limits where we are. Um, on, the, on the revenue projections, I think for, for any debt sustainability analysis, the entire macro framework is very important. It goes to growth, it goes to revenue projections, and the links between the debt financing, the revenue projections, and growth. And, and I think that's, that's something where we try to use the best available information um, at that point to make uh, good projections. Um, uh, as I mentioned, in the new DSF, there are many different realism tools also that kind of um, raise um, little bells and whistles when, when there are, when the, and that require teams to explain better um, if there is a deviation from either historical variables or, or trajectories observed in other countries. But it's also an important part of the dialogue with the country authorities to actually very carefully look through the projections and... Uh, a very quick addition. On, I mean, w one of the difficulties, I mean, obviously, you know, as we discussed this morning, there is a political element in revenue projections as put in the budget. Right? We know that happens. The pressure always is to push up. Um, often, we end up trying to pull down, but you know, still, sometimes you end up with project revenue projections that are on the high side. Um, but, but the specific example you, you used, I, I mean, very relevant. Right? You have, you know, debt has been contracted effectively to put in a capital project that is generating a public return. Um, maybe it's a road or airport, some type of transportation that um, the beneficiaries of that is it's not just kind of one single company or something. Like that. It's, it's a broad-based development. And that, and particularly in many of our economies, no, the beneficiaries would actually be the informal sector. Right? I mean, we have a lot of informal activity still going on. Right? And so it really puts a pressure on the design of your tax systems. Um, you have to have a tax system that can capture those kind of transactions to generate the return back to generate your revenue stream. Okay. Great. Uh, and, uh, I'm going to bring in uh, Annalisa and, and, and Greg just on this question of, of coordination and uh, the, the, the kind of Jakarta Club, if we, if we want to call it that, and whether we're seeing any signs of progress. Um, I think 2016 seems a world away now um, in the way geopolitics are. And so we just have to look at Venezuela, Barbados, which is very small. But Venezuela is interesting where there's a lot of Chinese loans, there's a lot of Russian loans, there's um, IMF not so at least officially involved to the best of my knowledge. So um, you, you learn a lot about how the Chinese are reacting to their lending. Will they get this back? And seeing how they react to that. We've, um, and then on sort of in South Asia, you've got Pakistan, who the new government requesting an IMF program what, that's borrowed very, very heavily from the, the Chinese and the BRI initiative. And we've got letters from US senators to Congress saying, why are we bailing out the Chinese with an IMF program? So you've got this very, very interesting things to watch that are, that are very in play right now. And while fortunately, we, don't, you know, we, we have the case of Mozambique, which is which in terms of the, the, the one euro bond that is, and the loans that are being discussed with the credits there, but, but it will be quite new and I think we'll learn things from the way the Pakistan IMF program goes. I think we'll learn things excuse me, about how um, Venezuela eventually works out. And I think for Venezuela what's interesting for me is that this state-owned oil company who can give away barrels of oil in collateral for loans. And when I look at some of the West African countries that have state-owned oil companies, I have many, many questions about what barrels they might have promised, 
when I when I do my macro, what happens when if things go wrong? So that there's there's a big challenge there, and that's why it's, we spend you know it's quite easy these days with all the wonderful information flow to an, analyze the macro, the monetary policy, but the real headache is is spending time unpacking these large state-owned enterprises, be it sort of Sonangol in Angola, the Cameroon refinery, Ethiopia's telecoms, um, the post office in Senegal. There's a huge long list that make investment decisions really, really complicated. And I think all of these characters would come into play if there were a problem. Just a very couple of... Uh, brief points in here. Of course, there will be a session tomorrow, um, late afternoon, also debating uh, this kind of broader kind of arguments in terms of coordination. But I think we shouldn't kind of discount the fact that China is an observer to Repari Club. Uh, it wasn't actually quite natural before. And I think it's a kind of a shift uh, in, in the concept as well of that sustainability and a kind of priority um, of the topic uh, uh, back in Beijing. The idea around the G20 as a kind of platform, uh, I mean, the Japanese presidency has that sustainability in the continent actually is one of the priorities. So certainly a kind of a way to explore whether the G20 discussion, finance ministry is actually particularly working group is, could be one of the places. Right. Uh, Fanol, I'm, I'm going to come back to you with this, this last question on the, on the kind of politics of debt, but I'm going to do two things with this question. Um, firstly, I'm going to ask you to wrap that into your concluding remark, and I'm going to ask each of you uh, two questions. But before I do that, uh, should we try another round of voting? We had, uh, what was it, 83-16 last time. Um, don't quite know where the missing one was, but uh, um, let's, let's try another round of voting if, if, if your devices are all working. Uh, and I'm going to ask each of you a less concluding remark than perhaps a prescriptive remark. What, what should be done, point one? And secondly, we don't know how you would have voted uh, on that question of is there a problem or not. So I'm going to ask you for a each of you for a quick yes or no, which way you would have, are, are you with the, uh, the majority or not? So yes or no, and then. Uh, I'll start with a yes, uh, but a different reason. So I'm not gonna go to the reasons. Okay. Uh, but let me answer the question that my, my colleagues asked about, about the, the politics of that. I think we need to recognize that the continent at this stage, there is a tussle between debt sustainability and development needs. So if I go to, I'll give you an example. Uh, Malawi, where I originally come from, is, is on a program with IMF. And in the last two years, we haven't been, as a country, able to recruit teachers. We haven't been, there are medical doctors, and you're talking about Malawi, medical doctors who have graduated on public funding, who we can't take into the system. Because the IMF and the World Bank actually says your wage, is bi your wage bill is huge. Now, the politics is that when they say your wage bill is big, the politicians are not going to cut their benefits. They're not going to fire themselves. So they cut down on those areas where the people actually see that they are suffering. Now, if then they, the people are told that we are going to build a hospital, but we're going to take a loan, and you look at this community that actually walks seven kilometers to get a health center, will they worry about repayment? And I think that's what we need to think about. That's why it's so difficult. But the point is that as we get these debates around, especially when we debate the loans in the context of leakages and wastage, and focus on areas where the loans haven't been used properly, then you get the people interested. And I think that's why it's so difficult for most of our communities to debate the Chinese loans, because most of the loans in China, they see a public utility. And when they see a hospital, most of them don't even ask well, how much it's going to cost, 
or it costed investors what it cost somewhere else. To them, as long as now there is a hospital two kilometers from their home, they are doing okay. So it's about us, I mean, in the civil society where I come from, to actually begin to make this debate beyond the technicalities of what we are saying here into people's lives every day. So that's what my conclusion. So a call for accountability. Greg, yes or no, and, uh, and one prescription. Um, I, th I think yes, but it's a tough one. It's over a time frame issue, but not in the next few years, but, but I think problems are brewing. Um, I think we just got to put the sovereign in the center of all this, and, it, and it's very, they've got the hardest job of all of us to, to be bold enough to say no to some of the, the good offers they get, and certainly to the bad offers. And I think if, if there's a role for any of us, I think the most important thing we can do is to, to push for the data so that it's public and it gets analysed by the think tanks and the journalists. And then that spurs the discussion at home. I remember in Zambia, we're sort of pushing for understanding of debt service to ratio, so no one really cared. But the minute the government bought sort of 40 fire engines for $40 million, there was uproar. Yeah, exactly. And that was massive in, in a pushback on government yeah. on its value for money. Yeah. And then where did you get the money from this? And these conversations <coughs> continued. So those were huge to generate what is most important, and that's domestic accountability. Thanks. Okay, so call for accountability. Annalisa, yes, yes or no? And so we actually debated about a third option, which is it depends. <laughs> but I would say <laughs> we kind of went, ended up with two options in the end. I would say a kind of a yes, uh, all in all. In terms of prescriptions, if I can use also a second one. I mean, first of all, it's about building capacity to scrutinize the deal, so the terms and conditions. The kind of ball is really in the hands of governments to kind of choose among the different financing options. We also debated about the GDP ratio as a kind of as a tool we shouldn't rely upon. And I agree, but it's also a tool for fiscal discipline. I'm not saying this because I'm Italian, but it's also a way to kind of uh, keep scrutiny um, and also held governments into account. So I think we shouldn't discount uh, uh, the debt to GDP ratio as a monitoring tool. Great. So monitoring. Daughter, yes or no? And, uh... No. That <laughs> said, uh, I think there are many there, as we discussed, there are many countries in Africa who have been doing very well and who have seen long, very strong growth in recent years. Um, doesn't mean that all countries uh, will have a smooth ride. There we will probably see some more incidents of countries going into debt distress, but not in a general debt crisis term. That would be my prediction. Now, I think going forward, it's important still to be alert. We have talked about a very uncertain environment. And uh, to take action now to reduce these debt vulnerabilities. And that includes strengthening debt management, but also strengthening macro-fiscal frameworks, strengthening domestic resource mobilization, and putting mechanisms in place to improve public investment management. Great. Thank you. David, yes or no? I actually had it as a non-applicable. <laughs> <laughs> my, my perception is the real focus is the growth and development down the road. We get that right, the debt, debt concerns go away. We get it wrong, they stay. Um, that's not an easy box to tick, I know. <laughs> and in terms of you know the, the thought, I mean, debt and financing is, is going to be with us for the next 50, 100 years. This is an important part of the development process. We need to get it right. We need to understand 
what we are doing from our side or our side, but also the domestic accountability has to be there. And if I can add a, a reading list for everyone, please go back and read Chinua Achebe's A Man of the People from the early 60s. Um, that was Fanuel's description earlier. <laughs> Chinua Achebe, A Man of the People. Great. Thank you all. I'm not sure if we do uh, uh, if we do have any polling results. Can someone nod or shake their heads or uh, call them out from the back if we have them? 60-40. So we've... So, okay, so with more information, there is less concern or, or just less voting. Hard to know. Uh, so uh, I, I, let, me, let me not uh, stand between, between you and, uh, and coffee and the interesting conversations that are going to take place outside, like you know, Zambia's fire, fire engines and the like. I'm sure people want to know more about that. But I think a couple of things have really stood out for me is that we, that we started out with, a, I suppose, a fairly uh, kind of technical look at sort of where are the numbers and, and how are we projecting them quite rapidly to a, a sort of politics of debt and uh, the tensions between debt and development. And I think, I think that's fascinating and, and I'm sure will uh, lead to, to really interesting conversation over the next, uh, the next day and a half. But uh, before, we, before we do that, I'd like to ask you to please join me in thanking these panelists for uh, uh, their insights. And, uh, and you are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.